Hi, I'm Stacia Boyd, the creative director, primary writer, and audio describer for Q Media Productions. This audio describe tour was produced in 2019 for Wright Brothers National Memorial Visitor Center in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. The center's exhibits tell the story of Wilbur and Orville Wright's historic achievement, man's first powered flight in the place where it occurred. The tour is narrated by Mary Olkers and George Orlando. Welcome to Wright Brothers National Memorial Visitor Center's audio described tour. Behind the information desk is an artist's rendering of the Wright Brothers Monument, located a short 15-minute walk away. A 60-foot-tall granite monument, shaped like a tall pillar, sits atop a green, grass-covered hill. The inscription from the base of the monument is printed beside the image. In commemoration of the conquest of the air by the brothers Wilbur and Orville Wright. Conceived by genius. Achieved by dauntless resolution and unconquerable faith. You are currently in the lobby, a rectangular room with floor-to-ceiling windows on the long sides, the information desk on one end, and the entrance to the exhibit area on the other. This audio track includes the Visitor Center Welcome, an overview of the Visitor Center, and a description of a tactile map of the surrounding area. In addition, an exhibit titled Flight Line Decoded is located on the opposite side of the room, directly across from the entrance doors. It highlights what is visible in the flight area beyond the floor-to-ceiling windows. Welcome to the audio-described tour of Wright Brothers National Memorial. In this segment, we'll provide a short introduction, after which, please make your way to the tactile floor plan of the building. It's mounted about four feet above the floor on a pillar located about eight feet to the left as you're facing the information desk. There, you can continue listening to the introduction, instructions, and overview. The tour includes approximately 90 minutes of audio description. As you move through the exhibit areas, information is triggered automatically. The tour offers general navigation. However, it is not a detailed turn-by-turn -turn mobility guide. Finally, the following applies to all of the exhibits. Unless otherwise stated, all photos are historic black and white images taken in the late 18 and early 1900s. All individuals, unless otherwise noted, are white, and all videos are silent and play without sound. Last, throughout the museum, some exhibits are located on sloped panels that may be freestanding in front of windows, mounted to exhibit guardrails, or placed in front of vertical exhibit panels. We will let you know where those panels are throughout the tour. Tactile Overview of the Visitor Center and Museum For this overview, please refer to the tactile floor plan mounted vertically on the pillar about 8 feet to the left of the information desk near the entry doors. You are now in front of the tactile floor plan. The top half of the panel includes a map and the lower half includes the map key. Near the upper right, about the 1 o'clock position, you'll find a raised star and the number 1 indicating you are here. Please follow along as I describe the visitor center layout. Moving counterclockwise, the numbers 3 and 4 indicate the men's and women's restrooms. So you're aware the restrooms are accessed from outside of the building. An arrow, just to the left of the star, shows the closest exit to the restrooms. Continuing counterclockwise, you'll find the museum store, marked with the number 6, and the main exhibit space, marked with a 5. At the 7 o'clock position of the floor plan, you'll find the flight room and reproduction 1903 Wright Flyer. Also, before you begin your tour of the Visitor Center and exhibits, a video screen behind the information desk lets visitors know about daily offerings, special tours, and other items that might be of interest. Ask a park ranger for information about today's schedule. 
While you can explore the visitor center at your own pace, the exhibits progress chronologically and are best toured in order. Once in the flight room, where you'll find the reproduction 1903 flyer, you can continue to explore the final exhibits in any order you'd like. The tour begins at the tactile topographic map located near the center of the lobby. Start with your back to the tactile floor plan, angle towards the 2 o'clock position, and move forward about 16 feet. Tactile topographic map of the site. Near the center of the lobby is a 3-foot by 6-foot table with a topographical map of the Wright Brothers National Memorial Site. It's oriented to match the view beyond the windows as you face towards the flight path. To the right, near the 3 o'clock position, a raised star indicates the location of the visitor center and notes that you are here. All of the map's elements are identified in Braille. However, for those who don't read Braille, here's an overview. In the lower right corner of the map, you'll find a key that identifies driving roads with smooth gray lines, walking paths with rough beige lines, and the first flight line path in light green with a slightly different texture than the walking path. It is found on the map about six inches above the visitor center. Along the flight path from left to right is the first flight boulder, which indicates where the Wright brothers launched the 1903 flyer. Inches to the right, three markers indicate the distances flown on the first three flights. Following the flight path about a foot to the right is the fourth and final flight marker, indicating the last and longest flight on that day. Between the visitor center's raised star and the first flight boulder marker, towards an 11 o'clock position, two small buildings represent the reconstructed 1903 quarters and hangars. If you follow the walking path from the quarters and flight markers to the left about two feet, you'll find the Wright Brothers Monument atop Big Kill Devil Hill. Beyond the monument, continuing left, the map indicates the location of the December 17, 1903 sculpture. So you're aware the very rough, bumpy texture on the surface of the map indicates trees and foliage. The flat, grainy surface indicates grass and open fields. On the ends of the table, two panels include information and photos of things to do while you're here. Suggestions include visiting the reconstructed 1903 quarters and hangar, the first flight line, Big Kill Devil Hill, and the December 17, 1903 sculpture. Please ask any park ranger for more information, directions, or assistance. To reach the exhibit panels titled Flight Line Decoded and imagine you were here, move to the left side of the table, the end closest to the information desk. With the table on your right, move forward about six feet to the center of the next exhibit. Flight Line Decoded You are in front of the floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking the flight line and a nine-foot-long, sloped, tactile exhibit panel that mirrors landmarks located outside. Outside beyond the windows, at the far left and in the distance, the Wright Brothers Memorial stands atop Big Kill Devil Hill. At about the 10.30 position, two small wooden buildings sit side by side. On the sloped panel, the buildings are represented on the far left end. Again, outside near 11 o'clock, a boulder marks the takeoff spot for the first four flights. On the panel, the boulder is indicated with a raised circle a few inches to the right of the hangar. From the boulder marker on the panel, four lines indicate the different flights, the narrowest dotted line representing the first and shortest flight, and the largest dashed line representing the longest flight. 
Following the lines to the right, three almost evenly spaced granite markers show where the flyer landed for the first three flights, each marker represented by the number 1, 2, and 3 on the tactile panel. To the far right, not visible outside, behind the flight room of the center, but represented on the tactile panel, is the final marker. The last marker, indicated by the number 4, is located at the far right end of the panel. The text reads, Imagine you were here. Cold winds gust. The engine roars to life. Now the flyer is in the air. That was the scene from here when the Wrights made the first four powered flights. The tactile panel, which includes braille text, indicates the distance of each flight. The first three are grouped close together. The fourth is found at the far right. From left to right, the text reads, Flight Marker 1. Orville takes off at 10.35 a.m. He lands here after flying 120 feet in 12 seconds. Flight Marker 2. Wilbur takes off for the second flight at 11.20 a.m. He lands here after flying 175 feet in 12 seconds. Flight Marker 3. Orville takes off for the third flight at 11.40 a.m. He lands here after flying 200 feet in 15 seconds. Flight Marker 4. Wilbur takes off for the fourth and final flight at 12 p.m. He lands after flying 852 feet in 59 seconds. At the far right end of the panel, a modern photo of the takeoff boulder, inset with a bronze plaque, sits on a flat, grass-covered field. A handle that extends in front of the panel slides to reveal an iconic black-and-white photo from the same location on December 17, 1903. Barely four feet above a sandy dune, the right flyer takes off. In the middle of the airplane, between the two thin white canvas-covered wings, a man, Orville Wright, lies flat on his stomach operating the controls. By the tip of the right wing, another man, Wilbur Wright, runs alongside. With your back to the far right end of the panel, angle towards the 930 position and move forward about 27 feet to the next exhibit, the Museum Space Introduction panel titled, Making the Impossible Possible. This marks the entrance to the exhibit space, which continues through the room in a U-shaped, counterclockwise path. To the left, in the center of the room, a panel includes a colorized, life-size photo of Wilbur and Orville Wright, shown in mid-stride. Both men appear to be in their early 40s, both wearing suits and round bowler hats. Orville, on the left, sports a thick black mustache and carries a long coat over his arm as he walks next to his clean-shaven brother, Wilbur. The text reads, Making the Impossible Possible On December 17, 1903, the Wright brothers usher in the age of modern aviation with four short flights. At a time when most people thought flying was just a fantasy, they show the world that anything is possible. Explore the journey that takes them from dream to reality. Continue the tour by entering the museum space. From facing this panel, turn right and move forward about two to three feet. Then turn left, move forward again about two to three feet. The next exhibit, titled The Story Starts at Home, will be on your immediate left. On the left, extending down an approximately 16-foot exhibit, the early story of the Wright family is presented. From the left and continuing to the right, the five exhibit panels are titled The Story Starts at Home, The Older Brothers, The Wright Trio, The Bat, and Friends. After you've explored this section, the tour continues counterclockwise around the room on the opposite side of the aisle at the exhibit titled Be Curious. The Story Starts at Home a black-and-white photo shows the Wrights' home in Dayton, Ohio, a neat two-story house with clapboard siding, double-hung windows with wood shutters, and a wraparound front porch. A bicycle leans against a wrought-iron fence that surrounds a small yard. The Wrights' home in Dayton sits in a working-class neighborhood. 
They move here from Hartsville, Indiana, in April of 1871. Wilbur is four. In August, Orville is born in an upstairs bedroom. To the right are two photos of the brothers' parents. Wilbur and Orville grow up in Dayton, Ohio, in a close-knit family. Parents Susan and Milton Wright foster their children's curiosity and intellect, and they encourage them to test their wings and pursue their dreams. The left photo shows Susan at age 45, her straight, dark hair pulled neatly to the back of her head. On the right is Milton in 1871 at the age of 43, with a full, neatly trimmed beard and dark hair swept across his wide forehead. Susan and Milton Wright raise a family of seven children. Twins Otis and Ida die in infancy. They pass their values onto their children: a belief in self-reliance, determination, and hard work, a love of learning, and a strong sense of social justice. A quote from Orville, referring to his father, reads: "He talked freely to his children on all subjects." In the next panel, the dominant image shows a younger Susan sitting for a photo, gazing directly toward the viewer. She wears a dark, formal dress with a delicate lace collar. Susan is 27 in this photo, taken one year before she marries Milton. Both are deeply religious and have been looking for a partner in the church. A quote from American Magazine reads: "She used to make bobsleds and playthings for the boys, and of course, interested them in what they were trying to make." At the top of the panel, Milton, his full beard now gray, is included among portraits of fellow male church members in an 1880 photo. Bishop Milton Wright was drawn to the Church of the United Brethren in Christ for its social values, including its anti-slavery and anti-drinking stance. The story of the older brothers continues at the next panel, located about three feet to the right. The older brothers. At the top of the panel hang formal portraits of two young boys, both wearing suits, their hair both cleanly parted on the right side. On the left, dark-haired Ruchlin Wright at age 11 in 1872. On the right, Lauren in 1871 at age 9. Just one year apart, and the oldest of the Wright children, Ruchlin and Lauren are especially close. In the lower left, a photo shows an adult Ruchlin Wright sporting a full, bushy mustache. The text reads. He's the eldest child and a restless spirit. At 28, he heads to Kansas City with his wife Lulu and their baby Catherine, and works as a bookkeeper. After 13 years and three more children, he turns to farming. The family raises cattle and corn on an 80-acre spread in Kansas. In the lower center of the panel, a photo of an adult man, Lauren, also with a bushy mustache but wearing small oval glasses, smiles as he holds three young children on his lap. When he's 24. Lauren follows his big brother's lead and heads west to seek his fortune. Unlike Ruchlin, he returns several years later. He marries his childhood sweetheart Ivanette and finds work as a bookkeeper. Lauren's four children—Milton, Leontine, Ivanette, and Horace—adore Uncle Orv and Uncle Will, and the uncles dote on them. The next panel, about four feet to the right, is the Wright trio. The Wright trio. Portraits of three young children hang in the center right section of this panel. Wilbur at eleven, Orville at three, and Catherine as a baby. As the three youngest, Wilbur, Orville, and Catherine are extremely close, and the brothers are inseparable. They have nicknames for each other. Wilbur is Ulam, Orville is Bubbo, and Catherine is Swess or Sturgeons. Panel text below each portrait describe the children. First, Wilbur Wright, born in eighteen sixty-seven, died nineteen twelve. He's smart, well-spoken. Quick-witted, able to retain facts and put things in a logical order, an athlete in gymnastics and cycling, and a natural leader. He's also shy, calm, quiet, and a little rumply. A 1912 quote from Wilbur reads: "From the time we were little children, my brother Orville and myself lived together, 
played together, worked together, and, in fact, thought together. Next, Orville Wright, born in 1871, died in 1948. Orville is a dreamer, an idealist, a restless thinker, and a sharp dresser. He's mechanically minded. He can see why something doesn't work, fix it, then make it better. He's an avid reader, a good cook, and a keen cyclist. Shy in public, Orville's a prankster and chatterbox at home. In a quote from 1924, Orville described his younger sister. Catherine was always a loyal sister who had great confidence in her brothers. And when we said we thought we would fly, she believed we would. Last, Catherine Wright, born in 1874. She died in 1929. Catherine is only 15 when Susan Wright dies. As the only girl in the family, she's expected to take on her mother's role as homemaker. She goes on to college and becomes a teacher. She's the only one of the Wright children to earn a college degree. She's quoted in 1925 saying, No family ever had a happier childhood than ours had. The next section is found about three feet to the right, just past a cylindrical display case, is titled The Bat. The Bat. Just in front of the exhibit, a cylindrical case holds a replica of a small wooden toy, about 12 inches tall. A simple toy inspires the brothers' early interest in flight. Wilbur is 11, Orville is 7, when their father brings home a wind-up toy powered by a rubber band. At the top of the toy is a small propeller, its blades forming a shallow V-shape and oriented horizontally, like a helicopter. A thin shaft connects the blades to a flat, half-moon-shaped wing oriented vertically. A rubber band is stretched between the two. When the blades are turned or wound up, the rubber band twists into tight knots. When the tension is released, the band spins the blades like a helicopter. Orville and Wilbur told the story in a 1909 magazine. Late in the autumn of 1878, our father came into the house one evening with some object partly concealed in his hands, and before we could see what it was, he tossed it into the air. Instead of falling to the floor, as we expected, it flew across the room till it struck the ceiling, where it fluttered a while, and finally sank to the floor. It was a little toy, known to scientists as a helicopter, but which we, with sublime disregard for science, at once dubbed a bat, a toy so delicate lasted only a short time in the hands of small boys. But its memory was abiding. On a panel to the right of the toy is Orville's drawing of the helicopter toy inspired by its flight. They build a copy and they try a test flight. It's their first aeronautical experiment. The last panel, just to the right, is titled Friends. Friends. Wilbur, Orville, and Catherine are funny and playful, and friends flock to their Dayton home. Historic photos show the Wright children as adults engaged in various pastimes, bike riding with friends, gathering with friends at Christmas, a portrait of a young men's club. The final panel of this exhibit is dominated by an 1890 photo of a young African-American man with close-cropped hair and small round spectacles. Wearing a suit and tie, the young man, identified as Paul Lawrence Dunbar, looks directly towards the viewer. Paul Dunbar, Orville's high school acquaintance, is one of their earliest business collaborators. In 1890, Dunbar and the Wright brothers published the Dayton Tattler, one of the city's first African-American newspapers. The paper is short-lived, but all three go on to greatness. The brothers as aviation pioneers, and Dunbar as an internationally recognized poet. In the lower section, a photo of Dayton Central High School's class of 1890, a class of about two dozen young men and women, includes Paul Dunbar and Orville Wright. At a time of entrenched racism, Dunbar is the only African-American in his class. The tour continues across the aisle from the cylindrical exhibit case.
Be curious. As a reminder, this exhibit is located on the outside wall of the exhibit area, across the aisle from the previous The Story Starts at Home exhibit. At the top, a quote from Wilbur Wright to aviation pioneer Octave Chanute reads, For some years, I have been afflicted with the belief that flight is possible to man. My disease has increased in severity, and I feel that it will soon cost me an increased amount of money, if not my life. This panel highlights different ways the Wright brothers exhibited curiosity. One method, follow the news. The dominant image shows a bearded man, identified as Otto Lilienthal in 1894, wearing large man-made wings shaped like bird's wings as he prepares to launch from a hill in Berlin, Germany. The delicate-looking wings are made of thin wood strips, cloth, and wires. In the 1890s, as newspapers start to print photos with their stories, Otto Lilienthal's bird-like flights create buzz. Readers can see with their own eyes the German aviator's successes. Like others, Wilbur and Orville take notice. At the upper left, a turkey vulture, also known as a buzzard, soars with its wings outstretched. The panel reads, Observe. Is there any substitute for the real thing? Taking a cue from others pursuing flight, Wilbur and Orville go outside to watch birds for clues. Turkey vultures, graceful, soaring birds with large wingspans, are a favorite. At the lower left are two handwritten pages on Wright Cycle Company letterhead, dated May 30, 1899. The panel reads, Ask Questions. Where do you go for expert advice? Wilbur first writes to the Smithsonian Institution, a center for scientific research in Washington, D.C. The Smithsonian sends pamphlets and a bibliography about aeronautics, which help launch their work. At the lower right, sitting in front of the panel, a flipbook contains reproductions of selected pages from books available to the Wright brothers. The panel text says, Read. Could bird flight hold the key to human flight? To seek the answer, the brothers read books about animal locomotion and early attempts at flight. The flipbook contains representative pages from books published between 1874 and 1894 by aviation pioneers such as Octave Chanute and Otto Lilienthal. Titles include Progress in Flying Machines, Bird Flight as the Basis of Aviation, and Animal Locomotion, or Walking, Swimming, and Flying, with a Dissertation on Aeronautics. The tour continues at the exhibit titled Make Connections. To get there, follow along the outside wall, moving about 20 feet to your left. At the left end of this exhibit, a photo shows a two-story brick building with a large front window. It's the Wright Cycle Shop in Dayton, where they hone their mechanical skills and earn money to pay for their flight experiments. The panel text reads, From their studies, Wilbur and Orville learned that they will need three things for a successful flying machine. Wings for lift, an engine for power, and a control system to balance and steer. They tackle the hardest part first, control. As cyclists and as bike mechanics, they start to see connections between flying and cycling. A 1908 quote from Wilbur and Orville is in the center of the exhibit. Our idea was to secure a machine which, with a little practice, could be balanced and steered semi-automatically by reflex action, just as a bicycle is. A text panel to the right reads, What the rights think. They believe that control is key and can be achieved through simple body movements that mechanically alter the shape of the flying machine. They are the first to pursue this. Below the quote, at the front of the panel, a set of bicycle handlebars are connected to a small model airplane visible behind a plexiglass dome. Visitors are invited to gently turn the handlebars to manipulate the model plane, which mimics simple hand and body movements that mechanically alter the shape of the aircraft. Take control. The brothers make a connection between flying and cycling, the new rage. It's about turning. 
To stay in control while turning a bicycle, you have to lean your body to stay balanced. The brothers think they can apply this same concept to help control a flying machine. Continue following the outside wall to your left about 10 feet to the next exhibit titled Think Outside the Box. Two exhibits in this area are Think Outside the Box, found on the outside wall to the left of the previous panels, and Soar Like a Bird, an interactive experience located near the center of the room. Think Outside the Box. At the left end of the exhibit, a tall vertical panel includes a photo of Orville and another man, Ed Sines, a friend of the brothers, working on bicycles in the right shop. How could a flying machine balance and turn in the air against the wind? The brothers need to know to move ahead. As the best ideas often do, the answer will come from thinking outside the box. At the right end, another vertical panel includes a quote from Orville in 1941. Learning the secret of flight from a bird was a good deal like learning the secret of magic from a magician. After you once know the trick and know what to look for, you see things that you did not notice when you did not know exactly what to look for. Below the quote, a drawing of a bird's wing, extended as if in flight, but slightly twisted, similar to the way a human might extend an arm and then roll their palm down. Panel text reads Could twisting be the answer? From research and observation, Wilbur and Orville think the answer to control may lie in the way birds fly. Birds twist their wings ever so slightly to keep control in air currents. But how could the brothers replicate that motion with a flying machine's fixed wings? Between the two panels, an exhibit case holds a variety of tools and items like those used by the Wrights in their shop. A socket wrench, part of a bicycle hub, and a drill bit are actual tools used by the brothers in their early flight experiments. In front of the panel, contained in a plexiglass tube, an interactive exhibit holds a reproduction cardboard box, similar in size and shape to a box used to hold aluminum foil. The text reads Aha! In 1899, Wilbur is idly twisting a bicycle inner tube box when he sees the answer. A biplane with flexible wings could raise one wing and lower the other, twisting and balancing in air like a bird. At both ends of the plexiglass tube are wheels that, when turned, cause the box to flex, giving it straight edges, slight curves. A quote from Orville describes how he created a model kite to test the theory. We began the construction of a model embodying the principle demonstrated with the paper box within a day or two. Near the center of the display case is a drawing of their model kite from 1899, showing the bracing and wing construction that give it the ability to bank and turn in the air. The drawing shows a box kite with two delicate straight wings, one above the other, connected by thin vertical braces. Wires extend from the front wings to two sticks, illustrating that pulling back or down on one stick or the other will cause the wings to flex in opposite directions. Panel text reads. Problem solving. The brothers translate Wilbur's aha moment into a prototype, a model kite. Wilbur flies it in a nearby field, and it works. It balances, twists, and turns with ease. They call this mechanical twisting wing warping. Their success will spark years of experiments with kites and gliders. Soar like a bird. Study nature. Turn your back to the previous exhibit titled Think Outside the Box and move forward about eight feet. Near the center of the room is an interactive exhibit designed to simulate the motion of wings in flight. The exhibit is eight feet long and three feet wide. Visitors can pass between two undulating handrails that rise and twist, causing the visitors' arms to move like birds' wings in flight. 
First, we will describe the two explanatory panels mounted to the exhibit. The first sloped panel is mounted on the handrail nearest the previous exhibit. It's titled, Soar Like a Bird. The text reads, Spread your arms out like wings. Angle your hands to turn, balance, and keep yourself steady. It's what Wilbur and Orville do. By imitating birds, they start to understand how a flying machine could keep its balance in wind currents or turn in the air. They believe that twisting or wing warping is key. A color photo shows a turkey vulture, also called a buzzard, in flight. Its large wings stretched wide, its body flat, its feet pressed up tightly below its tail feathers. A quote from a letter, written in 1900, from Wilbur to Octave Chanute reads, My observations of the flight of buzzards leads me to believe that they regain their lateral balance when partly overturned by a gust of wind, by torsion of the tips of the wings. If the rear edge of the right wing tips is twisted upward and the left downward, the bird becomes an animated windmill and instantly begins to turn. On the opposite side of this exhibit, you'll find another sloped panel mounted to a rail. It's titled, Study Nature, and includes a color photo of seagulls soaring over a beach on the outer banks. In the center of the panel is an image of Wilbur's handwritten notebook, open to an entry from their fall 1900 trip to Kitty Hawk. In it, he compares the flight of buzzards, eagles, and turkey hens. A quote from Wilbur to Octave Chanute reads, Kitty Hawk is a splendid place to observe soaring flight. I think at least a hundred buzzards, eagles, ospreys, and hawks made their home within a half mile of our camp. To experience this exhibit, move to either end so you're between the rails. Then, extend one or both arms and place your hand on top of the rails. Then, keeping your hands on the rail, move forward through the exhibit. To continue your tour, return to the outside wall and continue following it around the room to your left. The next exhibit is titled, Test Your Theories, and spans the entire back wall of this part of the museum. This section includes numerous panels, interactive exhibits, and spans the entire back wall of this part of the museum. In a shallow U-shape, beginning on the right and continuing counterclockwise across the back, panel titles include Test Your Theories, Exhibit Introduction, Overcoming Challenges, Interactive, Keep Learning, The People of Kitty Hawk, and Anticipate Setbacks. Test Your Theories Introduction Facing towards the rear right-hand outside wall, in the corner at the left, a photo of Wilbur and Orville at Kitty Hawk in 1901. The two men wearing suits and hats stand on a windswept sand dune, each tightly holding wires attached to a glider flying a few feet above the ground, as if it were a kite. How do you make a dream a reality? Encouraged by their success with the 1899 kite, Wilbur and Orville take the next step, testing their theories with gliders. In September 1900, after their busy season at the cycle shop in Dayton is over, they come to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. A 1902 quote from Wilbur reads, We soon passed from the reading to the thinking stage, and finally to the working stage. To the right, spanning the width of the panel, a map indicates the long seven-day journey by train and boat from Dayton to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. The text reads, Seek Advantages. To test gliders, Wilbur and Orville want a place that offers strong, steady winds, dunes, and empty, treeless space. Their research tells them that Kitty Hawk has all these things. It's open, windy, and has miles of gently sloping sand dunes, ideal for takeoffs and soft landings. Here, on this stunningly beautiful barrier island, they will shape the future. Follow along the outside wall as it turns left in a corner. The next exhibit, titled Overcoming Challenges, is located on the back wall. Overcoming Challenges Interactive 
Located near the right rear corner of the exhibit room, this interactive consists of two round discs with one-third removed to reveal a photo underneath. Below the discs, a bicycle pedal can be turned by the visitor, which turns the discs at the same time. Photos and text revealed under the left disc show opportunities the brothers found here. Corresponding challenges are revealed under the right. There are three sets. First, a photo of the glider in flight. Strong winds are great for glider experiments. The corresponding photo shows a man crouched down in front of a canvas-covered tent. But almost blow away their tent. Second, a photo of an empty beach. They love that Kitty Hawk is isolated. The corresponding photo shows cans of cream of corn, tomatoes, and baked beans. But it's so isolated that food is scarce. They rely a lot on canned goods. Third, a photo of three pelicans in flight. They enjoy being outside where they can observe birds in flight. The corresponding image shows a swarm of oversized mosquitoes. But mosquitoes attack them. The tour continues about four feet to the left at Keep Learning. Stop in front of the exhibit case. Keep Learning. To the left of the Overcoming Challenges Bicycle Pedal Interactive is a large photo of Kitty Hawk Bay in 1900. In the foreground, sweeps of sandy dune dotted with small puffs of vegetation. Farther back, a two-story home sits amidst a scruffy tree line. Just beyond, a bay of water extends to the horizon. Panel text reads, What happens when things don't go as planned? The brothers build the 1900 glider using Otto Lilienthal's data and equations. They discover there is not enough lift generated by the glider's wings to support the weight of a pilot. Instead of giving up, Wilbur and Orville fly the glider as a kite and continue to collect data. A quote from Wilbur to his father reads, I do not intend to take dangerous chances, both because I have no wish to get hurt and because a fall would stop my experimenting, which I would not like at all. The man who wishes to keep at the problem long enough to really learn anything positively must not take dangerous risks. To the left, above an exhibit case, a photo shows the 1900 glider being flown as a kite. A thin, horizontal section, made from the same material as the wings, extends from the front of the glider on the same level as the lower wing. To reduce the risk of crashing, they add a section they call an elevator in front of the wings. It helps control pitch, the movement up and down. The People of Kitty Hawk Just to the left of a display case, a panel contains photos of local residents, including members of the Kill Devil Hills Life-Saving Station that helped Wilbur and Orville when they were working in Kitty Hawk. Near the center of the rear wall, a display case holds a treadle sewing machine, which gets its name from the foot pedal, or treadle, at the bottom of its frame. The operator continually rocks the treadle with their foot to power the sewing machine. Nearby, a photo shows an older couple. The gray-haired man, wearing a dark suit, stands next to a woman who sits behind a treadle sewing machine. The text reads, Addie Tate's Sewing Machine Bill and Addie Tate, in later years, pose with Addie's sewing machine, which she lends to Wilbur when he has to modify the 1900 glider's wing coverings. She uses his leftover French sateen fabric to make dresses for her daughters. The tour continues about four feet to the left at the panel titled Anticipate Setbacks. Anticipate Setbacks. Less than three and a half minutes. Panel text reads, Wilbur and Orville return to Kitty Hawk in the summer of 1901. Their experiments don't go well. The glider, still based on Lilienthal's data, is bigger than last year's, but not better. Serious problems with lift still persist. While they make their longest glides yet, they face problems with the control system. Wing warping often causes the glider to spin into the ground. 
The first photo shows the glider, about 24 feet wide, with sturdy cloth-covered wings, flying about 10 feet above the sand dune. A man lies in the center of the lower wing, operating the controls. On July 28, 1901, Orville writes to his sister Catherine. Our first experiments were rather disappointing. The machine refused to act like our machine last year, and at times seemed entirely beyond control. To the left, another photo shows a small, wooden, shed-like structure, its entire front wall lifted open and supported with three tall boards. Four men sit or stand beneath the shady cover. Octave Chanute and two associates, Edward Huffaker and George Spratt, visit the camp in 1901. Left to right, Chanute, Huffaker, Orville, and Wilbur in the hangar the brothers build to protect the glider. In the last image, which fills the remaining space on the panel, two men run alongside the right glider, holding it by the struts that connect the lower wing to the upper as it begins to take flight. A man wearing a white shirt and tie lies in the middle, operating the controls. The caption reads, Local fishermen Dan Tate and Edward Huffaker hold the glider's wings as they launch it off a sand dune in 1901. Wilbur is the pilot. Turning to the left, clockwise around the room, the final panel includes a quote by Wilbur, recalling how discouraged they were by their 1901 tests. We doubted that we would ever resume our experiments. Although we had broken the record for distance gliding, when we looked at the time and money which we had expended and considered the progress made and the distance yet to go, we considered our experiments a failure. A photo below shows Orville Wright standing on the left, posing with the 1901 glider at Kill Devil Hills. The glider is turned, pointing upwards, sitting on its wings, and revealing the craft's underside. The wing is about eight feet high. The wood frame is easily seen, each strut spaced about one foot apart across the 22-foot span of the wing. The panel's dominant image, taking up the majority of the remaining space, shows the glider from below as Orville flies the glider above the dunes. The tour continues to the left. Follow along the outside wall around the room to the next exhibit titled, Don't Give Up. Stop when you reach the sloped exhibit panel. This exhibit titled, Don't Give Up, includes an exhibit case containing a reproduction of the Wright Brothers' homemade wind tunnel and other artifacts, as well as a short video of how the tunnel works. A sloped panel in front of the case is titled, Shape of Success. Don't Give Up. A tall vertical panel on the left includes a 1901 photo of Wilbur lying flat across the lower wing as the glider lays on a sand dune. In late August 1901, Wilbur and Orville return to Dayton. They're discouraged by the glider's poor performance at Kitty Hawk and wonder if human flight is just a dream. But they learn critically important lessons even from their disappointments, a key element of their engineering process and success. A 1908 quote from Wilbur reads, I confess that in 1901, I said to my brother Orville that men would not fly for 50 years. To the right of the exhibit case, another vertical panel is titled, Do It Yourself. At the top, a quote by Orville reads, If we all worked on the assumption that what is accepted as true is really true, there would be little hope of advance. Below are images of torn scraps of wallpaper covered with handwritten calculations and graphs. In fall 1901, Wilbur and Orville believe the numbers they use to calculate lift the force that keeps a plane in the air, are flawed. They decide to throw out data created by experts. Using a homemade wind tunnel, they gather data to be used in calculating lift and drag. Wind Tunnel Exhibit Case Behind the glass, this exhibit case includes actual items used by Wilbur and Orville during their wind tunnel experiments. 
including Orville's drafting tools, a combination wrench, and original airfoils, small sample wing shapes used in their experiments. In addition, is Orville's original engineering handbook. The main item behind the glass is a reproduction of their homemade wind tunnel. A wooden box, approximately six feet long and two feet square, sits at waist height. On the far left, a large fan, encased in a metal cone, turned mechanically by a thick belt, would blow air forcefully through the box. On top at the right, a clear window allows the operator to look into the box to monitor his experiments and read the results. Wind Tunnel Video Description This silent video repeats on a continuous loop. The narrative text and description are presented in order. Note, a tactile example of an airfoil featured on the video can be found on the left end of the sloped panel in front of the exhibit. Wilbur and Orville at work in their Dayton, Ohio shop. The brothers build a wind tunnel to gather their own data to calculate lift and drag. Illustration of a long wooden box with a large rotating fan on one end. Inside, what looks like small measuring scales. They create dozens of miniature wings called airfoils with specific curves and shapes. Various metal wings between 6 and 8 inches long with different curves and tapered ends. An example is located on the left end of the sloped panel in front of this exhibit. They design two ingenious balances, a lift balance and a drift balance. About a foot tall and wide, the thin metal frame is similar to a balance scale that uses weights. But instead of gravity, air blowing past the airfoil moves two corresponding needles, which in turn measure side-to-side -side motion. The lift balance measures the lifting force of each airfoil. Lift keeps an airplane in the air. The needle stops at different integers, depending on how far side-to-side -side the airfoil moves. The drift balance measures the ratio of lift-to-drag of each airfoil. Drag is wind resistance that slows an airplane. The miniature airfoils are swapped out, which gives different results. They test each airfoil at multiple angles on both balances in the wind tunnel. The brothers write their findings in small notebooks. They record the data from each test and apply it to mathematical lift and drag equations. A page from the notebook shows multiple columns with dozens of numbers recorded for each airfoil. Column number 12 is highlighted. Their work shows that the curve and long narrow shape of airfoil number 12 has the least drag and most lift. Graphic image of a long piece of metal with straight front and back edges. A more pronounced curve on the front that then tapers to the back. The brothers used this curve and shape to help design the wings of the 1902 glider, their best design yet. Final image, a computer-generated video of the right glider flying away from the viewer across the dunes with one of the brothers at the controls. Using their firm understanding of mathematics and engineering, Wilbur and Orville have created the world's most accurate aerodynamic data. Shape of Success in front of the wind tunnel display case, on the left end of a sloped panel, is a tactile reproduction of airfoil number 12. The text reads, Feel the shape of success. After testing dozens of airfoils, or small wing shapes, in their wind tunnel, the brothers find that number 12 has just the right curve and shape to make their glider stable and easy to control. To the right, a graphic drawing illustrates the various parts of the tunnel. From left to right, a belt attached to an unseen motor overhead attaches to a drive that turns a large fan. The fan blows air into a long, rectangular wooden box and across the lift balance, visible beneath a glass viewing window. How does that work? Wilbur and Orville place different airfoils on a balance inside a six-foot-long wind tunnel. They create a 30 miles per hour wind flow with a fan 
and measure the effects of lift and drag on the airfoils. Their goal? Learn which airfoil will have the greatest lift with the least drag. Continue following the outside wall to your left for about 14 feet to the next exhibit titled Sharpen Your Skills. Sharpen Your Skills. At the left end of this exhibit, on a tall vertical panel, is a photo of Wilbur standing inside a tent, surrounded by tools and camping gear. The text reads, In August of 1902, Wilbur and Orville returned to Kitty Hawk to test their new glider, built with findings from their wind tunnel experiments. As they hone their flying skills and tweak the glider, powered flight finally feels within reach. To the right, among more images of glider flights, the panel text continues. How much practice is enough? It's hard to say when you're learning something no one has ever done. Fly. In 1902, Wilbur and Orville believe the key to success is practice. They make roughly 1,000 glides. In skill and knowledge, the brothers now surpass anyone who has ever attempted flight. Photos in this panel reveal a new addition to the now-familiar canvas-covered glider. In addition to the fixed double wings, one above the other, and the small flat elevator extending in front of the pilot to control up and down pitch, a vertical rudder is now seen extending about six feet off the back, about one foot wide. It is as tall as the distance between the wings. The text reads, Refine your work. Part of the brothers' success lies in key refinement. In 1902, they add a fixed rudder, but problems continue with the glider spinning into the ground. They change the rudder so that it is movable. The movable rudder and wing warping system is controlled by the hip cradle, allowing the pilot to operate both controls in a single motion. The brothers can now fully control the aircraft and safely turn in the air. To the far right, a quote from Wilbur that same year reads, If you are looking for perfect safety, you will do well to sit on a fence and watch the birds. But if you wish to learn, you must mount a machine and become acquainted with its tricks. In the center of the panel, a series of photos taken during the month of October 1902. In some, the glider, piloted by one of the brothers, flies above the dunes. In others, the brothers are working, holding, or resting on or near the craft. In a September 23, 1902 diary entry, Orville wrote, We are tonight in a hilarious mood as a result of the encouraging performance of the machine, both in control and angles of flight. One month later, Orville writes to his sister Catherine, in two days, we made over 250 glides. To reach the next exhibit, move to the left end of the Sharpen Your Skills exhibit panel. Once there, turn with your back to the panel and move forward across the aisle, about 12 feet. The next exhibit is titled, Achieve Your Dream. It will start with a panel just to your left. This exhibit includes three sections, Achieve Your Dream, The First Try and First Flight, and Success. Achieve Your Dream. On the left end of the middle wall on the inside curve, a tall vertical panel includes a photo of the 1902 Wright glider soaring high above the outer banks. The Atlantic Ocean is visible in the distance. The panel text reads, Flying gliders? Perfected. Next step, powered flight. Wilbur and Orville have proven themselves as brilliant, intuitive engineers who have perfected processes of working through difficult technical problems. They're about to change the world. At the far left, a photo shows Wilbur and Orville reassembling the flyer at Kitty Hawk in 1903 in a small wooden shed-like structure. Inside, the disassembled wings of the glider are visible, one on the floor and one leaning against a wall. Finish what you start. With lift and control mastered, Wilbur and Orville now tackle thrust, the propellers, and power, the engine, during the winter 1902 and spring 1903. 
they find the engine is the easier of the two to produce. The design of the propellers is one of the most difficult challenges they face. At top, a quote from Orville. We worked out a theory of our own on the subject, and soon discovered, as we usually do, that all propellers built heretofore are all wrong, and then build a pair of propellers based on our theory, which are all right. An image below shows a propeller, the flat wood blades twisting slightly from the center to the ends. The brothers use airfoil data from their wind tunnel experiments to calculate the appropriate curvature of the propeller as it changes along the blade. They conceive of the propeller as a wing traveling, says Orville, in a spiral course. In the lower right, a photo of a bespectacled man wearing a vest and tie, his shirt sleeves rolled to the elbow, and a work apron hammers a metal part held tight in a vise. Charlie Taylor comes to work for the brothers in 1901. He and Orville work out the design for the flyer's engine. Taylor builds it, but testing in February 1903 destroys the engine. Taylor begins again, and by May, it's ready. A quote by Taylor reads: "We didn't make any drawings. One of us would sketch out the part we were talking about on a piece of scratch paper, and I'd spike the sketch over my bench. It took me six weeks to make that engine." A photo of the complete engine, not yet mounted in the plane, reveals four perpendicular pistons and a drive belt attached to a shaft. The caption reads. They build the engine to be light, 200 pounds max, powerful, 12 horsepower, and have minimal vibration. The next panel is located a few feet to the right. The first try and first flight. A narrow vertical panel shows the right flyer, complete with two propellers and the engine, and sitting on the rail used to assist the launch on a large curving sand dune. In the photo, four men, two young boys, and a dog are standing near the wing, looking toward the viewer. December fourteenth, nineteen o three, the first try, the first attempt at powered flight doesn't go well. Four men from the Kill Devil Hills lifesaving station help launch the flyer. As it rises in the air, Wilbur pulls up too fast. His error stalls the machine, and it lands hard, damaging the elevator. It will be three days before they can make repairs and try again. In a quote, Orville describes how he and his brother decided who would fly first. We tossed up a coin to decide who should have the first trial. Below the quote, an interactive flip tile represents the coin tossed by the brothers. Wilbur won, but he stalls out. Orville's next to fly on December seventeenth. To the right, the next panel shows the first flight. The famous photo dominating the panel shows the right flyer moments after it launched, barely a few feet above the sand. Its propellers a blur. Orville is at the controls. Wilbur, in a suit and cap, runs alongside. On the morning of December seventeenth, nineteen o three. Puddles of water around the hangar are frozen, and a cold wind blows from the north. Adam Etheridge, John T. Daniels, and Will Doe of the Kill Devil Hills Lifesaving Station, along with W. C. Brinkley of Manteo and Johnny Moore from Nags Head, arrive to help Wilbur and Orville move the flyer to the launch rail. After a final check, the brothers each pull a propeller, and the engine starts to roar. They step aside, speak quietly, and shake hands. Orville boards the flyer. At 10:35 a.m., Orville slips the rope restraining the flyer. The flyer is moving down the rail while Wilbur runs alongside, holding the wing. Before reaching the end of the rail, the flyer is in the air, and Orville's flying. He flies for 12 seconds and 120 feet. For the first time in history, when most people thought flying was just a fantasy, the brothers prove that anything is possible. The final panel, success, is seven feet to the right. Success.
An image of a cracked stopwatch, the one Wilbur and Orville used to time their flights, is pictured at lower right. The panel text reads, Success! The age of modern aviation has taken off. Wilbur and Orville make a total of four flights. They carry the flyer back to camp. In a sudden gust of wind, the flyer flips and is damaged beyond repair. Later, Wilbur and Orville walk four miles to the Kitty Hawk weather station and send a telegram home about the success. The telegram sent to their father, Bishop Milton Wright, is pictured above. It reads, Success. Four flights Thursday morning, all against 21-mile wind. Started from level with engine power alone. Average speed through air, 31 miles. Longest, 57 seconds. Inform press, home Christmas. Orville Wright. A caption below notes that due to an error in transmission, the telegram incorrectly stated the longest flight was 57 seconds. It was actually 59. In the lower right, a section of panel text lists the day at a glance. Dry, cold air with a wind chill less than zero. Wind speed, 27 miles per hour headwind. Number of flights, four. The longest flight was the last, at 852 feet in 59 seconds. The achievement? The brothers have flown the first-ever free, controlled, and sustained flights in a power-driven, heavier-than-air machine. The text goes on to explain the significance of the event. Free means unrestrained, not tethered to the ground like a kite. Controlled means the aircraft has the mechanisms to fully determine direction. Sustained means it can stay in the air for an extended period. Power-driven means it has a mechanical or electrical power source, unlike a glider. And heavier-than-air means not buoyant like a balloon. The tour continues across the aisle at the exhibit titled Believe. With your back to the success panel, move forward across the aisle about 14 feet. This area includes sections titled Believe, Keep Going, Make Doubters into Believers, and Return to Kitty Hawk. It also includes a short, silent historic film of a flight in Le Mans, France. Believe and Keep Going. An exhibit display approximately 10 foot wide on the outside wall of the room. At the left end, a tall vertical panel includes a photo of the Wright family's two-story wood-sodded house. The first powered flights on December 17, 1903, are just the beginning. The invention of the airplane is not the success of that single morning. After their earth-shattering achievement, the brothers return to Dayton in time for Christmas and confidently plan their next steps. To the right, a panel includes clippings from Minneapolis, San Francisco, and Arizona newspapers. The headlines read, Airship was a great success. Craft sailed skyward without aid of a balloon. And, incorrectly, Wright Machine makes a three-mile flight. Another heading adds, Their machine traveled into the teeth of a winter gale. The text reads, When no one realizes your breakthrough is a breakthrough. Word about the brothers' feet quickly reaches the public. But in a world weary of news about flying machines that turn out to be failures, there's little acclaim. Early newspaper accounts, which exaggerates what happened, don't help. Its facts sound so preposterous that readers shrug them off. Below, a headline from the Virginia Pilot newspaper that came out one day after the first flights claimed incorrectly that Wilbur was piloting, that they flew three miles, and that the plane turned and circled. The next panel is titled, Keep Going. Wilbur and Orville are now determined to transform their experimental 1903 aircraft into a practical flying machine. Their goal? Fly for extended periods under pilot control. The brothers build new airplanes in 1904 and 1905. They test them at Huffman Prairie, a cow pasture that's a short trolley ride from their Dayton home. Below, a photo of a misty, open pasture with a small, wood-clad airplane hangar. 
In the center, the 1905 Wright Flyer takes off. The caption reads, Orville pilots the first takeoff of the 1905 season at Huffman Prairie. Wilbur and Charlie Taylor are also shown. A catapult launches the flyer. On October 5, 1905, Wilbur flies straight for 59 minutes and over 24 miles. They have come a long way since Kitty Hawk. Make doubters into believers. The right side of the exhibit includes photos and a silent video of the brothers and the flyer in different locations. The dominant panel image shows Wilbur, with a passenger seated at his side, flying above horse-drawn carriages in Powell, France. A 1908 quote from the London Daily Mirror newspaper says, The most wonderful flying machine that has ever been made. The panel text reads, In August 1908, with the flyer perfected, Wilbur demonstrates it before a huge crowd in Le Mans, France. Overnight, the brothers become global celebrities. In September, Orville flies at Fort Myer, Virginia. Top left photo. Dozens of well-dressed men and women, all wearing hats, gather around the right flyer at a race course in Le Mans, France. Lower left photo. The airplane flies past the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. In the center right, archival footage shows the first public flight that took place at Le Mans, France, August 8, 1908. The 51-second silent film is not synchronized to the device. The last panel in this exhibit is at the right, titled, Return to Kitty Hawk. Le Mans Flight Film Description In an open field, the 1908 Wright Flyer faces away from the camera. Men hold the wings level. Behind it is a catapult, a tall pyramid-shaped structure with a large, round weight at the top. With a series of pulleys, a rope runs between the plane and the weight. The weight is released, it drops to the ground, and the force simultaneously launches the airplane, which takes flight. Scene change. Well-dressed men and women, in a covered viewing stand, talk amongst themselves. Some, using binoculars, look toward the sky. Scene change. The flyer, now about a 100 feet above the ground, soars across a gray sky. The video plays on a continuous loop. Return to Kitty Hawk. At the top of a thin vertical panel, a quote from journalist Byron Newton, reporting from near the brothers' camp in 1908, reads, Someday, Congress will erect a monument here to these rights. The panel text continues. In 1908, the brothers returned to Kitty Hawk for the last time together to conduct more flight experiments. Wilbur completes the world's first passenger flight with mechanic Charles Furness. Orville returns in 1911 for soaring experiments. As their newfound fame attracts reporters, the isolation they once treasured in Kitty Hawk vanishes. Below, a photo of a glider flying about 30 feet above the sandy dunes of Kitty Hawk. Eight men stand below and watch it soar overhead. October 24, 1911. Reporters and others watch as Orville creates a world record for soaring at 9 minutes 45 seconds in the 1911 glider. The final exhibit in this area, titled Inspire Others, is located back across the aisle. Start with your back to the Believe exhibit. Turn to angle your body to face the 1 o'clock direction, then move forward about 16 feet. The Inspire Others exhibit is located directly across from the entrance to the flight room. In addition to artifacts and panel text in the Inspire Others exhibit, this section includes a silent three-minute video of 20 First Flight Society inductees that plays on a continuous loop. The slideshow-style video includes painted portraits along with names and notation of their most famous achievement. The description is not synchronized with the video. Inspire Others. Less than three and a half minutes. 
On the left end of the exhibit, a tall vertical panel includes a 1909 photo of Wilbur and Orville Wright wearing suits and ties, sitting casually on the front porch steps of the family home in Dayton. The panel text reads, Curiosity, Discipline, Ingenuity, Imagination, Self-Determination, Teamwork, Drive. These strengths guided Wilbur and Orville to greatness as they designed the first successful airplane. These brothers, who were bicycle mechanics, engineers, inventors, and visionaries, had shown beyond doubt that the impossible is possible. Their story would grip the world's imagination and inspire others to dream big. Who or what inspires you? A 1908 quote from Wilbur reads, It is not really necessary to look too far into the future. We see enough already to be certain that it will be magnificent. To the right of the panel is a framed portrait of the most recent inductee to the first flight shrine. The portrait is changed every year. In the center of the exhibit, an angled panel reads, The first flight shrine, honoring achievement. The Wright brothers live on, not just in their achievement, but in those they inspire. The painting here and those on screen show inductees of the Paul E. Garber First Flight Shrine. Each year, the First Flight Society, which preserves the legacy of the first flight and shares the brothers' genius for the future, recognizes outstanding contributions to aviation by inducting a new shrine member. Continuing to the right is an iconic photo taken by the Apollo 11 astronauts as their craft drifted over the surface of the moon on July 20, 1969. From above the moon's dusty, gray crater-marked surface, the blue, green, and white Earth shines against the black background of space. An angled panel in front of the photo is titled, Reach for the Stars. Many people said human flight was an impossible dream, and a trip to the moon? Fantasy. When mission commander Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon's surface in 1969, he carried with him, in tribute to the rights, fragments of the 1903 flyer. What impossible dreams are next? On the right side of the panel, a lift tab reveals a wood fragment, under glass, from the left propeller of the 1903 flyer, and fabric from the upper left wing, that was carried to the moon by mission commander Armstrong. The tour continues in the flight room. Turn with your back to the Inspire Others exhibit. Just so you're aware, to your left, you'd find the information desk where you picked up your device. The entrance to the flight room is directly in front of you. Move about 10 feet forward, then locate the concrete wall on the right. Continue following it forward and stop where it ends. First Flight Society Inductees Video Description A continuous slideshow-style video includes painted portraits of aviation pioneers. The portraits are not described, but here we list their names and notable achievement. Charles Chuck Yeager, the first to break the sound barrier. Apollo 11 crew, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Edwin Buzz Aldrin, first lunar landing. Louis Blériot, the first to fly across the English Channel. Charles Bolden, Jr., astronaut and first permanent African-American NASA administrator. Jacqueline Cochran, first woman to break the sound barrier. Bessie Coleman, first African-American woman to earn a pilot's license. Donald Douglas, Sr., pioneer in commercial aircraft manufacturing. Amelia Earhart, first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. Mary Fike, first woman aviation research and development engineer. Yuri Gagarin, first person in outer space and to orbit Earth. Charles Lindbergh, first solo nonstop flight across the Atlantic. Jerry Mock, first woman to fly solo around the world. Hans von Ohain, designed the liquid-fueled engine powering the world's first jet. Wiley H. Post, first to fly solo around the world. 
Harriet Quimby, first woman to earn a U.S. pilot's license. Gertrude and Francis Regalo, invented the first flexible wing. Alberto Santos Dumont, pioneer aviator and first powered heavier-than-air flight in Europe. Igor Sikorsky, designed the first practical helicopter. Betty Skelton, pioneer U.S. woman aerobatic champion. Tuskegee Airmen, Benjamin O. Davis Jr. and George Roberts shown. First all-African-American military pilots and their ground personnel. Welcome to the Flight Room. To help orient you to the space and ensure you're out of the heavy traffic area, we suggest you enter the Flight Room and, following the concrete wall to your right, move to the other side of the wall. Once there, stand with your back to the wall and turn to the 10 o'clock position. You are now facing toward the center of the room. The Flight Room is approximately 70 feet square. Two of the exterior walls, the south one located to your far left, and the west wall, located directly across the room, are made up almost entirely of glass windows and doors, revealing the view outside. The windows extend from the floor up to graceful arcs at the ceiling. The original flight line is visible beyond the south and west windows. Benches are located around the room and near the south windows on your left. Two exit doors are also located at either end of the benches, found along the glass wall on your left. In the center of the room sits a full-sized reproduction of the original 1903 Wright Flyer, surrounded by a waist-high guardrail. The aircraft frame is made of thin wood braces with delicate wires in an X pattern stretched between the upper and lower wings. Its wings, rudder, and elevator are all wrapped in creamy white fabric stretched tight across the frame. It is posed to represent the moment it first took flight, traveling from left to right as if it's taking off from the ground in front of you. From left to right or rear to front, first is the tall vertical rudder. Next, two large propellers, each with a visible chain that runs from the center of the propeller to a small black engine. The engine sits on the lower wing, just to the right of the center controls. The white, cloth-covered wings, one above the other and separated wood braces, are over 40 feet wide from tip to tip. Extending in front of the craft from the lower wing, directly in front and center, are small, narrow, horizontal wings called the elevator, used to stabilize the craft in the wind. The flyer is about 24 feet long from the elevator on the front to the vertical rudder at the rear. A replica of the launch rail and dolly sled used to help stabilize the airplane as it took off are visible beneath the flyer. Mounted on the guardrails surrounding the 1903 flyer at various intervals are five sloped exhibit panels that address the following challenges the brothers had to solve. They are titled Lift, Takeoff, Power, Thrust, and Control. The descriptions can be heard after selecting the 1903 flyer from the menu. Those panels are described in sequence under the audio track titled The 1903 Flyer. The final exhibit extends across the long wall to your right and is titled Flying Machines. It shows the changes and improvements to the earlier gliders that took place between 1899 and 1902. The exhibit includes four tactile representations of the gliders. It is the final exhibit on the tour. Beyond the 1903 flyer, along the north wall of the flight room, a silent film made up of historic and current images of the Wright brothers' achievements plays on a continuous loop on a large video wall. In the northeast corner, between the railing around the 1903 flyer and the video screens of the silent video, is a smaller-scale tactile model of the 1903 flyer for you to explore through touch. The tour continues at the 1903 flyer. From your 10 o'clock position, move forward about 17 feet until you encounter the guardrail surrounding the flyer. Once you reach it, 
Turn right and follow the railing till you reach the sloped panel titled Lift, just before a tall, square exhibit case. The 1903 Flyer. All of the sloping exhibit panels found on the guardrails surrounding the flyer are approximately 30 inches above the floor, and most include a tactile diagram and some braille. The first and last panel are located at the tips of the wings. We suggest you begin at the first panel, titled Lift, then follow the guardrail clockwise around the flyer, encountering takeoff, power, and thrust, finally ending with control at the opposite wing. Lift. Solving the four problems of flight. Lift. On the right side of the panel is a tactile cross-section of the 1903 flyer wing that illustrates the principle described in the panel text. The text reads, The flyer's wings create lift, the force that holds it in the air. Wilbur and Orville use their 1901 wind tunnel to come up with the right curved wing shape that generates the most amount of lift and least amount of drag. Lift is generated by the wing shape and angle of attack. As the wing moves forward, the air moving on top of the wing moves at a greater speed which lowers the air pressure. The air underneath the wing moves slower, which increases the pressure underneath the wing. Since the air below the wing is at a greater pressure than the air above it, this creates lift. Standing to the right of this panel is an exhibit case that contains wing fabric from the 1903 flyer. In order to protect the fabric from the damaging effects of light, the fabric is only visible if one presses a button found at the lower right of the case. The remainder of the time the fabric remains hidden behind the opaque glass. The irregularly shaped section of fabric is about 4 feet tall and roughly 3 feet wide. Mostly beige in color, the thin, lightweight fabric includes stitched seams, a few small rips, and dark brown stains at the top and bottom. A quote from Orville reads, Our new machine is the prettiest we have ever made, and of a much better shape, being smooth on both upper and lower sides. The text panel continues. The real thing. Wing fabric from the 1903 flyer. This is a piece of the actual fabric that Wilbur and Orville cut, sewed, and shaped to make the wings of the 1903 flyer. The brothers covered only the top of their glider wings with fabric. With the 1903 flyer, they covered both the top and bottom surfaces of the wings. Additional fact about this fabric include, it was tightly woven cotton muslin called Pride of the West. Lightweight and durable, it was typically used for women's and children's undergarments. It was made in Rhode Island and bought at a Dayton department store. The tour continues clockwise around the guardrail, about 11 feet to the next sloped panel titled Takeoff. Takeoff. Referring to the life-size replica in front of you, the panel text reads, in front of you is a full-sized, accurate reproduction of the 1903 flyer that took powered flight from fantasy to reality. The original 1903 flyer is on display at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. On the right, beneath a plexiglass case, is a small bicycle hub, the metal part of a bicycle that allows the wheel to turn. The text reads, The real thing. This is one of the spare bicycle hubs the brothers brought with them in 1903. In the center of the panel is a tactile diagram of the 1903 flyer in a side view, which shows the position of the launch rail, dolly, and hubs in relation to the flyer. It includes Braille text, but for those who do not read Braille, from left to right, the text reads, Launch Rail. The flyer travels along a 60-foot wooden rail with a metal strip on top to build up speed for takeoff. Dolly. This support device has two bicycle hubs attached to it to carry the flyer along the rail. Bicycle Hubs. There are two hubs on the dolly and one hub on the front of the flyer to guide it down the rail. The tour continues clockwise around the rail about 10 feet to the next sloped panel, titled Power.
Power. On the right side of the panel is a tactile diagram of the 1903 Flyer engine from a side view. It includes Braille, but if you are unable to read it, starting from a 12 o'clock position, the diagram points out the flywheel, air intake, combustion chambers, chain drive for the camshaft, and crankcase. The engine produces the power that moves the propeller. In calculating the performance of the propellers, the brothers know their engine has the power to get them into the air. Lightweight, their engine is unlike any ever built. The panel includes the following information about the engine. Four cylinders, 12 horsepower at 1,200 revolutions per minute. It weighed 170 pounds and had 201 cubic inches of engine displacement. It produced 350 revolutions per minute of propeller speed. About three feet to the left, a display case contains part of the original engine crankcase from the 1903 Flyer. The text reads, While the Flyer's engine broke into pieces after the brothers' fourth flight in 1903, this crankcase survived. It enclosed the flyer's crankshaft, a crucial part of the engine. It was cast out of aluminum alloy, a first for future flying machines. The lightweight material would become a primary construction material for airplanes. The tour continues clockwise around the rail, about 25 feet to the next sloped panel, titled Thrust. The panel is located just past a tall cylindrical display case. Thrust. Solving the four problems of flight. Thrust. In the center of the sloped panel, a tactile diagram shows the propellers in relation to the engine and wings. The panel includes Braille, but if you are unable to read it, the text identifies the propellers as well as the chains that drive them and the motor that provides power. The panel text continues. The propellers generate horizontal lift, which acts as the thrust that moves the flyer forward. Their novel design is based on Wilbur and Orville's breakthrough. Propellers are just wings that spin in a circle. The propellers turn in opposite directions to counteract the torque, or rotation, of the spinning blades. A 1920 quote from Orville reads, These propellers had an efficiency of over 66%, an efficiency, I believe, rarely exceeded by marine engineers, and never approached by any of the aeronautical investigators up to that time. To the right, a tall cylindrical display case contains a broken propeller from the 1903 Flyer. The remnant of the original 10-foot propeller is approximately 7 feet long with faded silver paint and one of the two blades broken off at the midpoint. The remaining blade gets slightly wider from the middle to the tip and gently twists out from the center. After the brothers learn that two propellers rotating slowly work better than one rotating fast, they design this shape. The tip is slightly widened to work best at a low airspeed. This propeller, one of two from the 1903 Flyer, was later damaged after the brothers' fourth flight. The tour continues clockwise around the rail about eight feet to the next sloped panel, titled Control. Control. On the right side of the panel is a non-tactile illustration showing the control elements of the 1903 Flyer, flexible wings, rudder, elevator, and hip cradle, with Orville laying in the center operating the controls. The brothers' major breakthrough is their invention of three-axis control of roll, pitch, and yaw. The wings and hip cradle, used for wing warping, elevator, and rudder, help Wilver and Orville master controlled turns in the sky. At the lower left, three non-tactile turn wheels, each with an illustration of an airplane, demonstrate roll, pitch, and yaw from left to right. Roll, an image of a plane from directly in front. Turning the wheel tips the wings up and down. Pitch, an illustration of a plane from the side. Turning the wheel pitches the nose and tail up and down. Yaw. An illustration of a plane from directly overhead. Turning the wheel moves the nose left and right. 
This is the last of the five sloped panels located on the rail surrounding the 1903 Wright Flyer. To reach the final exhibit on the audio described tour, titled Flying Machines, continue clockwise, following the guardrail about 57 feet until you reach a tall, rectangular exhibit case. As a reminder, it contained the original fabric segment from the 1903 Flyer. If you'd like, you can press the square button to pause your device while you move to the next location. Once you're there, press it again to continue this audio track. Once you reach the exhibit case, continue past the case following the guardrail about 11 feet until you reach the second sloped panel and stop. Place your back to the panel, then move forward about 15 feet until you reach the middle of the flying machine's exhibit. The description starts at the far right end of the exhibit, about 10 feet to your right, and then follows back along this same wall. This exhibit is 33 feet long and consists of vertically curved exhibit panels. Starting from the right end and continuing to the left, four panels show the progression in design of the Wright Brothers flying machines from the first kite in 1899 to the last glider in 1902. Near the center of each panel, inside a small plexiglass case, is a scale model of each craft. To the right of each case, a tactile diagram of the flying machine viewed from above also illustrates the basic design changes. 1899. Starting small. At the top of the panel, a quote from Wilbur to the U.S. Weather Bureau on November 27, 1899 reads, We have been doing some experiments with kites. Below and at the center right is a plexiglass case with a tactile diagram of the 1899 kite to the right of the case. This kite, the first model the brothers built, features their new concept for control, wing warping. To balance in air, one wing twists up as the other twists down. They test it out, and it works. They decide to build a glider large enough to carry a person. A sketch, originally drawn by Wilbur and reproduced on the panel, shows the double-winged box kite with wires that extend from the leading windward edge down to an X-shaped controller. Manipulating the X will twist the wings. Additional text reads, The 1899 kite at a glance. Flown, July 1899, in a field near the Wright Staten home. The goal was to safely test theories on control. The brothers learned that being able to twist the wings, as birds do in flight, is the key to maintaining control in the air. It has a five-foot wing and is made of wood, wire, and fabric. The next panel, titled Human-Sized Experiment, is located just to the left. Stop at the next plexiglass case. 1900, a human-sized experiment. At the top of the panel, a quote from Orville reads, After a little time, we decided to experiment with a man-carrying machine embodying the principle of lateral control used in the kite model. To the right of the plexiglass case is a tactile diagram of the 1900 glider. Most of the time, the brothers fly this glider as a kite. Its innovative features are wings that twist to roll the aircraft right or left, and an elevator in front that moves the nose up or down. Wilbur pilots this glider a dozen times over a total of two minutes. A left-side photo shows the glider being flown as a kite. The double wings have white fabric attached to the top with thin wood ribs visible below. A flat, narrow section, called the elevator, extends from the lower wing in front. Additional text reads, The 1900 glider at a glance. Flown September through October 1900 in Kitty Hawk. The goal is to figure out the problem with lift and drag. The brothers learn that the elevator and wing warping work well but the glider needs more lift to support the weight of a pilot, and practice will be the key to success. Its best distance flown was between 300 and 400 feet. 
The wings were 17 feet long, it weighed 52 pounds, and was made of wood, steel wire, and French satin fabric. The next panel, titled Bigger But Not Better, is located about 8 feet to the left. Stop at the next plexiglass case. 1901. Bigger But Not Better. In the top center of the panel is a quote from Wilbur, written in his diary, July 30th, 1901. The control of our machine is not so good as last year. To the right of the plexiglass case is a tactile diagram of the 1901 glider. The 1901 glider is much bigger than the 1900 glider, but it still has problems with lift and control. The elevator and wing warping behave erratically, leading to flat spins into the ground. Three photos show the glider in flight over the dunes of Kitty Hawk. In the lower center, it's shown flying as a kite, just a few feet above the ground. Wilbur and Orville each holding a wire attached to the ends of the wings. The lower right photo shows the glider with one of the brothers at the controls, flying about 10 feet above the dunes. In the largest photo in the upper right, the glider is seen from below, Wilbur lying across the lower wing, operating the controls. Additional text reads, The 1901 glider at a glance, flown July through August 1901 in Kitty Hawk. The goal was to improve on last year's glider, especially lift. The brothers learned that the experts' lift data seems wrong. More work is needed for control. Its best distance flown was almost 400 feet. The wings were 22 feet long and 290 square feet. It weighed 98 pounds and was made of wood, steel wire, and unbleached muslin fabric. The last panel, titled New and Very Improved, makes up half of this exhibit and is about 15 feet long. The tactile model is found near the center, about 10 feet to the left. Stop at the next plexiglass case. 1902 New and Very Improved In the upper right, a quote from a letter Orville wrote to his sister Catherine on October 23, 1902. We now hold all the records. The largest machine, the longest distance glide, the longest time in the air, the smallest angle of descent, and the highest wind. To the right of the plexiglass case is a tactile diagram of the 1902 glider. At the rear of the airplane, a new addition to the design. The rudder is shown. The elevator at the top is now significantly wider and farther in front than previous models. At the right, the panel text continues. Wilbur and Orville used cutting-edge data from their wind tunnel tests to design the 1902 glider. Once they add a movable rudder to complete the control system, they've solved the problems of controlled flight, roll or banking, pitch, moving the nose up or down, and yaw, moving the nose left or right. Now, they prepare to tackle powered flight. Additional text reads, The 1902 flyer at a glance, first flown, September through October, 1902 in Kitty Hawk. The goal was to improve lift and correct problems with control. The brothers learn a new curve to the wings and a movable rudder instead of a fixed tail, make this glider a winner. Its best distance flown was 622 and a half feet, and longest amount of time in the air was 26 seconds. The wings were 32 feet 1 inch long and 305 square feet. It weighed 112 pounds and was made of wood, steel wire, and unbleached muslin fabric. At the far right, an image of a hand-sketched flyer. The caption reads, In camp at Kitty Hawk in 1902, Wilbur sketches this on a brown paper bag. The drawing will soon come to life as the 1903 Flyer, the aircraft that will make history. A large dominant photo shows the 1902 glider from the rear flying away from the view. The vertical rudder extends behind the pilot, Wilbur.
At the far left end of this exhibit, about six feet, the panel text continues. The patent. With the 1902 glider, the brothers know they finally solved how to control a flying machine in the air. In March 1903, they file a patent to gain the legal right to keep others from making, using, or selling their system of control. It's granted on May 22, 1906. They also apply for and receive patents from several European nations. Mounted on the panel in front of you, a flipbook reproduces the Wright brothers' patent application for their control system. It includes their hand-drawn diagrams, as well as seven typed pages describing the unique designs and processes. If you have completed all of the exhibits in the flight room, this concludes your audio-described tour. To return to the main lobby and visitor information desk, turn with the wall on your left, then move forward. When you reach the end of the flying machine's exhibit panels, continue following the wall as it turns right, then follow it as it turns back right into the short hallway between the flight room and the museum exhibit space. At the end of the hallway, turn right to proceed to the lobby.